0: And as we begin in 1 Peter, um, I want to ask and start with a question, a moment to reflect, a little exercise. Now, you don't have to say it out loud. When we think about the world around us, right, we think about all that's happening, whatever, each one. It's always interesting to be up here and to see each person and to think in each person something unique is happening in that person's life. Someone's world is just a little bit different than the person sitting next to them or to mine. But as we think about the world around us, how is it? How is the world? How is your life going right now? How does the world seem to you? If you could explain it in only one or two words, if someone asked you, how, is, how are things around the world going? Well, I think it's a, dif- a difficult thing to do in one or two words. We think about all that's happening in the world, good, bad, How are we want to characterize it, but there's two words that I came up with quickly and they were chaotic and complex. The world around us is chaotic, and the world around us is complex. Um, chaotic, you know, it wasn't surprised. It, it is chaos, however you look at it. Our lives, week to week, week in and week out, are chaotic. They're busy, but also things happening in the world are also chaos, right? We look and we watch the news. Whatever you guys watch, you see and you think, wow, what is going on? There's chaos, but it's also complex. The world around us is complex, um, and I know there's much more that we could say about the world. Um, it was when it comes to it, but chaotic and complex seem to come to my mind right away. And I feel that those words used to describe the world around us help us open up this text this morning to see what it has for us. It's easy to lose sight of who we are and what we've been called to do. The pressures of life, the day the day ins and the day outs, the allure of societal values, things happening in the world that we're attracted to, that we want to be a part of, or maybe that we even take part in, and even our own doubts and fears can cloud our understanding as far as knowing God's grand narrative and place for us in his narrative. I argue that our passage this morning powerfully speaks into this very struggle, offering clarity, hope, and direction in this chaotic and complex world. And so 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10 here Um, A little context, as before we hop into the text itself, um, Peter is writing to believers scattered across Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, as we know it today, Um, living as exiles in a world that's not their own, right? We refer to them as exiles, a world that often didn't understand or accept them as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ. We could say that sounds familiar, and it does to a degree, for each person, again, living here in your context, we face challenges day in and day out when it comes to being believers of Jesus Christ. We are navigating that life as citizens of God's kingdom in a world that operates very differently than the principles that we learn about and are taught in the scriptures. And so Peter's words to these early Christians resonate with profound significance both then and now. They are significant words for us to take note of and to be reminded of of who we are in Christ and the glorious mission that we've been given. And so this morning, as we go through the text, I want to kind of lay the path out for us, where we're going to go, what we're going to see along the way. Um, There's really, I boil this down really to two things. I want us to look at this morning, the foundation of us as God's people, a chosen people who God brought to this world to be together. Right now, we see God's people together, and this is happening all over the world today. God's people coming together. But there's a foundation for what we have here, right? There's a foundation that it's built on, and that's Jesus Christ himself. And so we'll look at that. What is the foundation of God's people? What is the foundation of the church? That's the first. The second, then, being our function. How do we function as a body of believers? How do we function as the church today? And I think in this small section, this short section, First uh, Peter tells us and tells us what are some of the functions that we're to do and to be as The church of Christ. We're going to look at our identity in Christ. We're going to look at that we're called to proclaim Jesus Christ to the world, and even their own transformation happening within our hearts and the lives of our people as a whole. So that's where we're going. We're looking at the foundation of the church, and we're looking at the function of the church. And so as we do that today, my prayer this week, as is always, is that our hearts and minds are open to the the transformative power of the truth of God's Word. To what He's saying and to what He's speaking us, asking that we be ready to receive and even maybe ready to be changed in ways that the Spirit will work in our hearts this morning. So if you haven't already, if you could, turn with me to 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. We have the beginning of this, Peter presenting us with a vivid image. And there's going to be a lot of imagery, right? A lot of vivid imagery, illustrations um, that Peter gives us throughout his entire book. But Here we see some vivid images of Jesus Christ as the living cornerstone of our faith. That is one of the underlying themes, not just of this passage, but of Scripture. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the foundation of all that we are. And this imagery sets the stage for understanding our identity and mission as believers in Jesus Christ, firmly rooted in the person and work of Jesus. So let's look here beginning in verses 4 through 6, as of Christ as the cornerstone, calling Christ our cornerstone, the cornerstone of what all that we do and all that we are. Peter introduces Jesus Christ as the living stone. We see this in the beginning of this passage, a concept that is rich with Old, old Testament imagery and significance. This title for Christ highlights his role as both foundational and dynamic within the spiritual construction of the church. The church would not be what it is today without Jesus Christ at the cornerstone and foundation of who we are and what we do. Christ is the living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. And so we have Jesus, who is the cornerstone of our faith. He is the reason that we live, the reason that we do what we do. We serve him and him alone. It's by grace we've been saved through faith in Christ. And yet this Christ that's being referred to here as our cornerstone Is rejected, rejected by men. Rejection is is a pivotal theme in the gospel narrative, encapsulating the world's response to Jesus during his earthly ministry and at the cross. Jesus' entire ministry, although followed by many, was rejected by more, right? Rejected by the world, leading to his ultimate death on the cross. And that despite being the Son of God, he faced opposition and was ultimately crucified a rejection that we see throughout the scriptures. So, Peter refers back to the Old Testament. He refers back to Psalm 118, 22. The stone that the builder has rejected has become the cornerstone. This psalm prophetically speaks of Jesus' rejection and his subsequent exaltation as the cornerstone of God's redemptive plan. The rejection of the Son of God of the Messiah was important to the overall plan of the gospel and our redemption through Jesus. It highlights the unique paradox of the gospel that through rejection and death comes salvation and life, the very thing that we're here to celebrate and to worship this morning. And so despite that human rejection, then, Jesus is described as chosen and precious. So we have rejected, but at the same time, chosen and precious, in the sight of God, right? The key key end of that phrase, rejected by whom? Rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. And this affirmation from the Father underscores the divine approval and significance of Christ's mission. He has the affirmation and approval of his heavenly Father. He is the chosen one, sent to fulfill the covenant promises and precious, indicating his unparalleled value and the costliness of his service for our redemption. When we think of things as precious, right? I think even just last night, for some reason, I I called, I think it was one of Mark My Boys, precious. Thinking of children, right, as precious, something we hold dear, something we keep close, something that we would do anything for our children. We would, we would die for them, right? That's what the Father is calling Jesus, precious. That's what he is. And it again it shows how costly the loss was. So Peter then goes back again to Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious for whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter again brilliantly echoing the prophecy to affirm that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise, both for the readers and for the listeners at the time, to establish a sure foundation for his people, a foundation that provides stability, security, and hope, something today that the world longs for. And for us here this morning, we've realized that that is Jesus himself. So Jesus, as the cornerstone then, right, sets the orientation and foundation for the entire spiritual building that is the church. All that we do, he sets the path we know, I think we're pretty familiar at this point with the idea and what, what, the, what the ancient use of the cornerstone was. I'm not an architect or a builder. I don't know if they still use those today. I have no idea. Um, maybe they do. But we know that what, what their purpose was. It was the first stone laid, and it determined the position and alignment of all subsequent stones, such as Jesus for us. His teachings, his life, his sacrifice constitute the foundation upon which the church is built influencing its structure, influencing its, its unity and its direction. Without Jesus at the cornerstone of our faith, the foundation of the church today, that we as, as we know it, we would be lost. So the imagery then of Christ as the living stone also speaks to his resurrection and the life he imparts to his father. So we, we know that he was rejected by men, he was affirmed by God the Father, but at the same time, he then also, in his death, defeated death and resurrected from the grave and now through that imparts life upon those who put their faith in him. Just as he is alive, so too is the church called to be a spiritual house. This morning we sit here as a local church, part of the greater universal church of Jesus Christ. And so as we read this and we, and we, we go through this passage, we need to be really inserting ourselves kind of into this text. We don't like to say that a whole lot. Don't insert yourselves in the text, and it's true, but this is being spoken to us. We are the church of Christ. We are his people, and everything that we see here is being spoken to us to be a, a vibrant and dynamic church, the spiritual house that's mentioned, filled with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And So believers, as living stones, are being built up into this spiritual house, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So all that we do is done through Jesus, and as we serve him, we are being built up together. We're saved, and after we're saved comes the vote of discipleship. We are discipled. We are building one another up as we continue to trust in Christ. And so we must embrace that call to be part of this living spiritual house each one of us here contributes something whether you know it or not to this body and ultimately to the greater church at large all across the world and that not that idea that concept hopefully and i think is embraced by many of us i mean I, i've had the joy of being here for quite a many quite a few quite a few years 10 years now and i've seen god at work in in many of the people here at this church and it's a joy to be able to work together, to contribute gifts and service and worship. Even though on Sunday mornings, worshiping together is contributing as to being part of God's body, contributing worship. Because together we are a collective testimony to the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Why do you, someone drives by and asks, why do you guys go to that building every Sunday morning? Right? It's not to have coffee and to talk about the previous week's activities or what's coming, right? We're coming to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together as one body. And so we need to embrace this call to consider how our life can be a spiritual sacrifice that reflects gratitude and devotion to God. How can we embrace that call and reflect devotion to God? Briefly, Peter then kind of pivots a little bit to a, a pretty simple concept but one that it's also very important, and that's our response to Christ. So our response to Christ as the cornerstone, as the foundation of our faith. He divides humanity really into two categories. Those who believe and those who reject in verses 7 and 8. Those who believe in Christ and those who reject him. Those who believe that he is precious. So the Father affirms Jesus as precious. Do we see Jesus as precious to our, to our own selves, to our life, and to our walk. Our faith in that grants us assurance of the things to come. God promises us life, both here and for eternity through his son's death. And then on the opposite side of that, he, he references as well the rejection. Those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they stumble because they don't believe they stumble because they don't they see the word but they don't believe it and so peter quoting here both psalm 118 which we looked at and isaiah 8:14 highlight the stark contrast in responses to jesus jesus is either believed or he is rejected he's accepted or he is declined by the people of this world and that's a living reality for us day in and day out Right? Even right now there could be someone here who doesn't know Jesus and someone's hearing about Jesus but how will they respond to Jesus? So every day people that maybe we come across or however it may be come in, whether it's hearing range or seeing of people acting in the name of Jesus and therefore they encounter Jesus and how they respond to that, how they respond to Jesus in the gospel determines their eternal destiny. And so what Peter is laying out here is a pretty heavy portion for us to, to take in. Jesus has foundation, but then when we take Jesus as our foundation, we need to then also take it to others, which we'll get to in a, in a, in a second. So what does this mean for us? As we look at these first couple verses, it means that our identity as believers is built on the strongest foundation possible, Jesus Christ himself. If Anyone, especially in this church, any of us as leaders, ever say that our faith is based on something else? Throw us out, right? Because it's Jesus, and it's Jesus alone. He is the only foundation that's possible to build the church on. And so the question is then do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus is the strongest foundation possible? I've already asked myself that numerous times this morning, let alone this week as we've gone through this text, and I I pose the same question to you. But we think about it. I mentioned it earlier. We think about a world that seeks out stability. It seeks out support. It seeks out the the very thing, the security, um, Jesus being referred to as the rock that can't be moved, right? The world is seeking the very thing that Jesus offers, and yet they still reject it. And so for us this morning, we know that we can stand secure on that rock that can't be moved. We know that our faith, our hope, and our very lives are anchored in him. And so when we see Jesus as the foundation of our lives, the foundation of our church, and as we reflect on that truth, we then need to consider how it shapes our understanding of of who we are in Christ. So yes, Christ is the foundation. We need to begin there. We need to start there with him always, always. We also have to know that we are not just random people scattered all about to do whatever we please, right? We are are here with a purpose. We are chosen and precious and purposely placed in God's spiritual house, whether that's here this morning or in the universal church as a whole, with Christ as our foundation. And so when we understand Christ as the cornerstone of our faith, of, of the church, it's a crucial point to understand leading into the next section, because it sets that foundation for everything we are and everything that we do. But that is just the beginning. Just like when someone is baptized. When we're baptized, I know when I was baptized, that was the beginning of my spiritual walk in Christ. The foundation had been laid. Jesus is my Savior, and I want to serve him with my life. Next comes the rest, right? The foundation is laid, and now we get to walk. We get to know and see how we function as a body. And Peter unfolds this um, incredible identity and mission in, this, in the next part of this section. It being able to explore the depths of our calling and how being built upon the cornerstone of Christ, we are empowered to live out a remarkable purpose in the world. So verses 9 and 10 then show us the Apostle Peter unveiling that significant identity, the mission that God has given us as his people with Christ as the foundation. And so let's move into that section now. Um, the function of the church. How is the church to function? We know that Christ is our foundation. We know that he is the cornerstone of our faith. So then how are we to function? Um, the first thing we see in, in 1 Peter 2, 9, really is that we are, we are selected. We are a chosen people, right? Divinely selected by God. We see a need for having an identity in Christ. And Peter here shows well the profound transformation and elevated status bestowed upon us as believers through Christ, showing us our new identity with four distinct yet interrelated phrases and titles given to his people. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession, which I'll refer to as God's special people God's special possession. God sees us as special, as precious. So this this quartet of designations, these four things that he gives us are crucial for us to understand part of our function as his people. That They're not merely honorary titles, but it is a divine calling that transcends anything this earth can give us, anything the world can call us, both good or bad. This transcends all those things across all human divides. God here in his word through Peter is looking to break down the worldly divisions and institutions that seek to divide us. And we're going to see that hopefully here. He calls us a chosen race. And we're reminded of the, the inclusive nature of God's kingdom. Right? We think of inclusion today, we don't necessarily give it a good title because how it's used to be inclusive. We kind of, at least I do sometimes, kind of like, oh, well, what does that mean? But God's Kingdom is inclusive, right? We see it throughout all of, the, all of the, all the New Testament that there's no qualifications besides faith in the gospel. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. We don't have to fill out a qualifications form. We don't have to, to check off the, did you do your prerequisites? Did you get all those things done before you can come? It's just faith in Christ, no matter how we look. And how we're, where we're from, what our culture is, what our backgrounds are, what we've done, what we haven't done, faith in Christ qualifies us as His chosen race. Secondly, we are called a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. This highlights the open access to God through Christ, which each believer is empowered to wield God's grace and truth. We serve both as recipients. And as dispensers of that mercy. And it can be puzzling. How is that possible? How can we both receive and then and dispense it at the same time? Well, for us as believers, God's at work in us. He works in our hearts. We've received that mercy. He sent his son to die on our behalf because of our sin for what we've done. And through repentance, we've received God's mercy and grace and salvation. And so, therefore we then go out and reflect Christ to those around us, being merciful and gracious, loving and kind and so on and so on to those around us, both receiving and then dispensing God's mercy. A holy nation emphasizes our collective calling to live lives set apart for God, embodying His holiness and righteousness in a world marred by sin and brokenness. That's, that's the, hop, the hope in the gospel, Right? That's just as we were. At one time, we were broken, marred by sin. Now, through Jesus, we are made new again. We are given new life. We are given his holiness. He sees us as holy. Peter says only a couple of verses before this, in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Referring back to the Old Testament in Leviticus. So we're called to be a holy nation. We are called to be set apart from the world. We have a hope that we want the world to know about and the world to see and to hear about and to be a part of. So we need to live it out and be set apart from them. Lastly, we see God's special possession. It underscores the deep personal love and value that God places on us. Marking us as treasured. Again, I go back to the idea of being precious. Whether it is our children or other things that we have. We hold things dear to us. Related to something maybe like if your house is on fire, what would you go in and get? If there's no people in it, what would you go get? What would you save? What would you keep? What's that thing that's precious to you? Well, just as our children are precious, we are precious to our Heavenly Father. He's marking us as treasured chosen, cherished, for, and this is, a, this is a necessary for me to hear, we aren't just then cherished and held and, and patted on the head. We're called to go do something as well, right? We're called to go and do uh, work on his behalf as well, proclaiming his excellencies. So the question then, have, have we ever really considered that fact, right? That the God of the universe cherishes us. The God who created all that we see, the God who we go to both in good and bad, in sufferings, and trials, the one who answers our prayers, the one who sent his son to die for us, the one who worked everything out for our good. Do we really consider the fact and the truth that he sees us as precious and treasures us? My prayer would be that we simply would just be thankful for that truth that he cherishes us and he sees us as precious. Together, these identities paint a vivid picture for our transformation from darkness to light. The fact that we are called out, we are separated from, and we are united under Christ and Christ alone. And nothing else should get in the way of that. Nothing else should be um, getting in the way of our unity in Christ. So, we are to identify with Jesus Christ. We are divinely selected. Secondly, We are on a divine mission called to proclaim Christ. In the second half of verse 9 here, it's articulated in a clear and compelling way what the mission for the church is, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This statement is two things. It's a declaration of purpose, but it's also a directive and a call to action. Guys, we have action items in the Word. We have things that God gives us to do, things that we're to go out and do, emphasizing that believers are entrusted with the significant tasks of vocalizing the greatness of God's character and deeds. We are to convey to others what God has done for us. We are called to proclaim Christ as the foundation of our faith and nothing else. And it's rooted, this proclamation, in the personal transformation each believer experiences. We all are experiencing that. And there's, there's, this is a theme throughout Scripture. I mean, obviously going to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Since foundation is one of the, the key words today, it's a foundational mandate, Right? that we have. We go to it as really why we why we go? Why do we send people? Why do people feel the need to be sent? Because Jesus himself commissions us to go and make disciples to the ends of the earth. That's why. Because he calls us to do that. He calls us to action. Acts 1 with the commissioning of the church, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The mission, again, to proclaim is not on us fully, right? And no, it's not a cop-out. right? It's, it's a power given to us by God through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit we are empowered by allows us to go and to proclaim Christ, emphasizing that believers are to be Christ's witnesses, sharing the gospel both here in Blandon, or Fleetwood, or Leesport, or wherever you may be from, to wherever you may go. That the gospel should go to all the ends of the earth. So, the, the mission is clear. The calling is clear. The question then, again, is how do we live out that mission? What do we need to do to do that? Well, it's a, it's, as I said, it's a divine mission. It's a mission that only God can equip us for through his spirit. So that's important that we recognize and know that. It involves both verbal proclamation and demonstration of God's love through our lives. It means being ready to share the story of how God transformed our darkness into marvelous light, not only with words, but through acts of kindness and mercy that reflect God's character. All that we do, guys, people know that we're Christians, know that we serve a God, and we reflect that God in what we do. And so we try our best to do it in ways that we can display his characteristics. To them. And so when we think about this again. It's not a passive existence again. We don't, we don't receive Jesus. We don't receive the spirit in our heart through, through God the Father and then just kind of sit by. It's a, it's a dynamic calling that we have as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, to vocalize the greatness of God, to share the stories of transformation, to celebrate the hope and healing found in Christ. Our very lives are transformed by his grace. And that transformation becomes a testament to his love and power, a beacon of light in a world marred by darkness. So we we see two functions. We see, first, identifying with Christ, identifying with our Savior, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of the church, everything that we are built on, we identify with Christ. And then our call to proclaim him, our call to proclaim Jesus to those around us, to be like him and to live like him. And then thirdly, in verse 10, We have a divine mercy, that we are transformed by the grace of God. And so here in verse 10, Peter captures the essence of the Christian testimony. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This verse contrasts our former state of spiritual destitution with our current standing in God's grace. From darkness to light. This mercy is not merely a, a dull or random forgiveness. It's not something that, again, is just kind of tossed out and wherever it lands, it lands. But it's, it transforms us, bringing us into a living, dynamic relationship with God. And again, it's, it's a theme throughout Scripture. Um, in Hosea 2, we, saw a, we see a, a prophecy of what is to come. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy— and I will say not my people to not my people, you are my people and he shall say you are my God this prophecy from Hosea is a direct reference to God's redemptive plan for his people to restore them, restore us despite the unfaithfulness of man despite the rebellion of man it sees God's mercy extending to us through Christ and incorporating us into his family there's a lot I can't go through all of them for time, but I'm going to do one more. Uh, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he showed loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This letter to the Ephesians, and also for us to read, echoes the theme of mercy as the basis for our salvation, highlighting that it is God's character, rich in mercy and love, that brings us from death to life Alongside of Christ. He is the reason that we are saved. His work allows us to see and have salvation. It transforms us. It's in Titus. It's not not as a form of our own righteousness, but of his. And so we need to live out that transformation. The the transformation brought brought on by God's mercy is not just a change in status but it's a call to live in a manner that reflects our new identity as his people. This involves turning away from our our old ways, our former ways, and embracing a life marked by the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And even continuing in that verse, against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We need to seek to embody the holiness and love that characterize our Heavenly Father, that separates us from the world. And so we see a function, right? We've seen the foundation. Now we see our function as believers. We have an identity in Christ that we, are to, that we have been selected divinely to follow. We've then been called to uh, be transformed and called to proclaim Christ that is, I'd argue, some of the primary functions of us as believers and as a church. Built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And so as we come to a close here of our journey, we look and we finish looking up at this text, we ask again, what does this mean for us now? Right? We, we discuss it, we talk about these things, we read them, well, it means that in a world marred by sin, a world that is chaotic and complex, as I mentioned in the beginning, and lost and have lost the stability and direction and hope, we see, through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, that we actually obtain those very things: hope, direction, stability, built on a firm foundation, guided by a heavenly Father and a righteous God. We stand reminded of the profound transformation and calling that we, as followers of Christ, have received? We must understand the foundational truth that Jesus Christ is our living cornerstone, his rejection by the world, important, but still and yet chosen and precious in the sight of God. In light of the world's rejection, God's affirmation is all that matters. It was true for Jesus, being rejected by the world, but affirmed by Heavenly Father, And we can say the same about us. We have the people that you see here to support us and to build us up. The world is going to attempt to tear us down. We are affirmed by our Heavenly Father through faith in the gospel. And that should assure us that the foundation of the church is set and immovable. These these functions out of the church are important for us to take away. Discovering that we are a chosen race breaking down all the societal barriers the world has placed around us. And it's ever so apparent today the attempt to break down what is the church, to drive a wedge. Satan is at work. Sin is at work. But Jesus is more powerful than that. And he is what unites us. So these titles given to us should be something that we're reminded of A value in God, not in a value from others, but in a value from God and a worth in His eyes, cherished and loved beyond measure. We understand those things, our divine mission to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us in darkness, a compelling command to speak of God's greatness, reminded of the transformation power of God's mercy, a theme that resonates deeply in this passage and throughout Scripture. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. It's so simple, yet it's profound at the same time. Once we have not received mercy, but now we are recipients of his boundless grace. This mercy is a reality. It's not something we just think of and hope for. It's a reality and should call us to action. So guys, this morning as we close, these truths that we've unpacked today, they aren't just theological concepts, right? They aren't something that we should just sit down and read a theology book and get to know it better, although we should. If you haven't read a theology book, I'd encourage you to do so. But it's beyond that. It's something at the very every essence of our identity and calling in Christ. The world around us is in desperate need of the hope and love and mercy that we've been commissioned to share. We've been commissioned and called to share those very things. So let us not be content with merely hearing the word, but let us be doers of the word as well, as James says in his first chapter. Let us hear and do. Let us speak. So in a sense, I want to, in a way, plead with myself and with us this morning that as a church, to encourage us in light of God's magnificent mercy, to embrace the full identity he has bestowed upon us, to embrace that call as believers and to live out our calling as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession. Proclaim Christ where you are. Unashamedly, In our words and our deeds, let the light of Christ shine brightly through our lives. So let us commit here and now, nothing like a a communion Sunday morning to, to think on and act on some of these things, to commit here and now to follow through with the commands of God's word. Specifically, Christ is our foundation and the functions that we have as a church. Let us commit to not letting the ways of the world divide us. But let us pray for the strength and courage to live out these truths, relying on the Holy Spirit to empower us each step of the way. God is with us for every step. And may our lives, church, be a living testimony to the transforming of power of God's mercy, drawing others to the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are a gracious God. And Lord, um, you have bestowed upon us a great calling built on the foundation of your son, Jesus Christ, as the cornerstone of our faith, the cornerstone of your church, the head of your body. Lord, may we do all that we do for the glory of you and your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we reflect on the functions that we are to have as a church, I pray that we would identify deeply with your son, Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection from the grave, all that he's done for us, may we seek to show Christ to others. Lord, we're called to proclaim, and may may we proclaim him um, with joy and unashamedly profess Christ as our Savior. And Father, we are to be transformed. So we start, but Lord, may we continue um, to be sanctified um, by your word, by the truth of it, by your people, and ultimately by you, Lord. May we be a, a church that radiates Christ, and may people be drawn to this place, May people be drawn to our homes um, because they see the difference. They see us set apart from the world. They see that, Lord, you give us stability. You give us a, a path of righteousness, a hard path to follow sometimes, but, Lord, a path that brings life and joy. And so thank you, Lord, for this time in your word, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.